Everyone, I hope you are comfortable because it is time for the Womance Public Access read-along of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Yet again, I am your odd chapter reader, Morgan. And I'm your even chapter reader, Isabeau. And we are gearing up to read chapter 19, but before we get there, we've got to talk about what happened in chapter 18. Isabeau, since you read it to us, I can think of no one better qualified to remind everyone of what happened in chapter 18. It was a doozy, Morgan. It's the longest chapter we've encountered (laughs) thus far in a book peopled by very tiny chapters. (laughs) We went to the ball and Lizzie looked in vain for Wickham and he wasn't there. So she talked to a lot of other people and even had a dance with Darcy where they bantered back and forth. And then she watched every single member of her family embarrass her, embarrass her publicly. And violently. She had a really good time trying to tamp that down and watch Darcy's face change as her mom said uncouth things, as her dad didn't do a good enough job of reining in poor Mary, who was hogging the piano with her off-key songs of sadness, and Mr. Collins, the impertinent house guest in Lizzie's home, introduced himself to Darcy, if you can believe it. I can believe anything from that guy at this point. It was horrifying. Lizzie was horrified. The only bright spot in the entire time was that Bingley danced with Jane no less than three times. Uh, that's one, I, I think that's one more time than last time, but I'm not sure. It was a lot. I wasn't there. Uh, also, Darcy, the reason Mr. Collins was so keen to introduce himself to Mr. Darcy is not because Mr. Darcy is tall and therefore hot. It's because he's Catherine de Bourgh's cousin. Nephew. You know the Brits. They're kissing cousins, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Darcy and Catherine de Bourgh kiss on the lips. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> All right. Without any more painful adieu, chapter 19. The next day opened a new scene at Longburn. Mr. Collins had made his declaration in form. Having resolved to do it without loss of time, as his leave of absence extended only to the following Saturday, and having no feelings of diffidence to make it distressing to himself even at the moment, he set about in a very orderly manner, with all the observances which he supposed a regular part of the business. On finding Mrs. Bennet, Elizabeth, and one of the younger girls together, soon after breakfast, he addressed the mother in these words. May I hope, madam, for your interest with your fair daughter Elizabeth, when I solicit for the honor of a private audience with her in the course of this morning. Before Elizabeth had time for anything but a blush of surprise, Mrs. Bennet instantly answered, Oh dear, yes, certainly. I am sure Lizzie will be very happy. I am sure she can have no objection. Come, Kitty, I want you upstairs. In gathering her work together, she was hastening away when Elizabeth called out, Dear ma'am, do not go. I beg you will not go. Mr. Collins must excuse me. He cannot have anything to say to me that anybody need not hear. I'm going away myself. No, nonsense, Lizzie. I desire you will stay where you are. And upon Elizabeth's seeming 
Really, with vexed and embarrassed looks about to escape, she added, Lizzie, I insist upon your staying with Mr. and hearing Mr. Collins. Elizabeth would not oppose such an injunction, and a moment's consideration making her also sensible that it would be wisest to get it over as soon and as quietly as possible. She sat down again and tried to conceal by incessant employment the feelings which were divided between distress and diversion. Mrs. Bennet and Kitty walked off, and as soon as they were gone, Mr. Collins began. Believe me, my dear Miss Elizabeth, that your modesty, so far from doing you any disservice, rather adds to your other perfections. You would not have been less amiable in my eyes had there not been this little unwillingness, but allow me to assure you that I have your respected mother's permission for this address. You can hardly doubt the purport of my discourse. However your natural delicacy may lead you to dissemble, my attentions have been too marked to be mistaken. Indeed. (laughs) Almost as soon as I entered the house, I singled you out as the companion of my future life. But before I am run away with by my feelings on this subject, perhaps it will be advisable for me to state my reasons for marrying, and moreover, for coming into Hertfordshire with the design of seeking a wife, as I certainly did. Oh, no. The idea of Mr. Collins, with all his solemn composure, being run away with by his feelings, made Elizabeth so near laughing that she could not use the short pause he allowed in any attempt to stop him farther. And he continued, My reasons for marrying are, first... That I think it a right thing for every clergyman in easy circumstances, like myself, to set the example of matrimony in his parish. Secondly, that I am convinced it will add very greatly to my happiness. And thirdly, which perhaps I ought to have mentioned earlier, that it is the particular advice and recommendation of the very noble lady whom I have the honor of calling patroness. Twice has she condescended to give me her opinion, unasked, too, on this subject, and it was but the very Saturday night before I left Hunsford, between our pools at Quadrille, while Mrs. Jenkinson was arranging Miss de Berg's footstool, that she said, Mr. Collins, you must marry. A clergyman like you must marry. Choose properly. Choose a gentlewoman for my sake, and for your own let her be an active, useful sort of person, not brought up high, but able to make a small income go a good way. This is my advice. Find such a woman as soon as you can, bring her to Hunsford, and I will visit her. Allow me, by the way, to observe my fair cousin, that I do not reckon the notice and kindness of Lady Catherine de Bourgh as among the least of the advantages in my power to offer. 
You will find her manners beyond anything I can describe, and your wit and vivacity, I think, must be acceptable to her, especially when tempered with the silence and respect with her rank will inevitably excite. Thus, much for my general intention in favor of matrimony, it remains to be told why my views were directed to Longburn instead of my own neighborhood, where I assure you there are many amiable young women. But the fact is that being, as I am, to inherit this estate from the death of your honored father, who, however, may live many years longer, I could not satisfy myself without resolving to choose a wife from among his daughters, that the loss to them might be as little as possible when the melancholy event takes place, which, however, as I have already said, may not be for several years. This has been my motive, my fair cousin, and I flatter myself it will not sink me in your esteem. And now nothing remains for me but to assure you, in the most animated language, of the violence of my affection. To fortune I am perfectly indifferent, and shall make no demand of the nature on your father, since I am well aware that it could not be complied with, and that one thousand pounds in the four persons, which will not be yours till after your mother's decease, is all that you may ever be entitled to. <laughs> on that head, therefore, I shall be uniformly silent, and you may assure yourself that no ungenerous reproach shall ever pass my lips when we are married. It was absolutely necessary to interrupt him now. You are too hasty, sir, she cried. You forget that I have made no answer. Let me do it without father loss of time. Accept my thanks for the compliment you are paying me. I'm very sensible of the honor of your proposals, but it is impossible for me to do otherwise than decline them. I am not now to learn, replied Mr. Collins with a formal wave of his hand, that it is usual with young ladies to reject the addresses of the man whom they secretly mean to accept when he first applies for their favor, and that sometimes the refusal is repeated a second or even a third time. I am therefore by no means discouraged by what you have just said, and shall hope to lead you to the altar ere long. Upon my word, sir, cried Elizabeth, your hope is rather an extraordinary one after my declaration. I do assure you that I am not one of those young ladies, if such young ladies there are, who are so daring as to risk their happiness on the chance of being asked a second time. I am perfectly serious in my refusal. You could not make me happy, and I am convinced that I am the last woman in the world who could make you so. Nay, were your friend Lady Catherine to know me, I am persuaded she would find me in every respect ill-qualified for the situation. Were it certain that Lady Catherine would think so, said Mr. Collins very gravely. But I cannot imagine that her ladyship would at all disapprove of you. And you may be certain that when I have the honor of seeing her again, I shall speak in the highest terms of your modesty, economy, and other amiable qualifications. Indeed, Mr. Collins, all praise of me will be unnecessary. You must give me leave to judge for myself and pay the compliment of believing what I say. I wish you very happy and very rich and refusing your hand do all in my power to prevent your being otherwise. 
In making me the offer, you must have satisfied the delicacy of your feelings with regard to my family and may take possession of Longburn Estate whenever it falls without any self-reproach. This matter may be considered, therefore, as finally settled. And rising, as she thus spoke, she would have quitted the room had not Mr. Collins thus addressed her. When I do myself the honor of speaking to you next on this subject, I shall hope to receive a far more favorable answer than you have now given me, though I am far from accusing you of cruelty at present, because I know it to be the established custom of your sex to reject a man on the first application, and perhaps you have even now said as much to encourage my suit as would be consistent with the true delicacy of the female character." Really, Mr. Collins, cried Elizabeth, with some warmth, you puzzle me exceedingly. If what I have hitherto said can appear to you in the form of encouragement, I know not how to express my refusal in a way as may convince you of its being one. You must give me leave to flatter myself, my dear cousin, that your refusal of my addresses is merely words of course. My reasons for believing it are briefly these— it does not appear to me that my hand is unworthy of your acceptance or that the establishment I can offer would be any other than highly desirable. My situation in life, my connections with the family of de Berg, and my relationship to your own are circumstances highly in my favor. And you should take it into farther consideration that in spite of your manifold attractions, it is by no means certain that any other offer of marriage may ever be made you. Your portion is unhappily so small that it will, in all likelihood, undo the effects of your loveliness and amiable qualifications. As I must therefore conclude that you are not serious in your rejection of me, I shall choose to attribute it to your wish of increasing my love by suspense according to the usual practice of elegant females." I do assure you, sir, that I have no pretension whatever to that kind of elegance which consists in tormenting a respectable man. I would rather be paid the compliment of being believed sincere. I thank you again and again for the honor you have done me in your proposals, but to accept them is absolutely impossible. My feelings in every respect forbid it. Can I speak plainer? Do not consider me now as an elegant female intending to plague you, but as a rational creature speaking to the truth from her heart. You are uniformly charming, cried he with an air of awkward gallantry. I know gallantry. I wanted to say, I don't know why I said gallantry. It's fine. And I persuade, I am persuaded that when sanctioned by the express authority of both your excellent parents, my proposals will not fail of being acceptable. To such perseverance and willful self-deception, Elizabeth would make no reply, and immediately in silence withdrew, determined that if he persisted in considering her repeated refusals as flattering encouragement to apply to her father, whose negative might be uttered in such a manner as must be decisive, and whose behavior at least would not be mistaken for the affection and coquetry of an elegant female. Hmm. What do you think about uh, Mr. Collins now? We were we felt a little sorry for him at first, but I cannot be dislodged from the portrayal of um, 
Mr. Collins by What's-His-Face, Cutler Beckett from Pirates of the Caribbean. He's short. Yeah, Tom Stoppard. Thank you. Yeah, character actor Tom Stoppard. He is an excellent character actor, and he really breathes a lot of life into this. And, like, the words on the page, and even as you read them, like, you imbued them with just, I think, the correct tone that the text intends of this sort of obsequious backhanded compliment that he's doing. He's like, you're poor. Yeah. I'm doing you a favor. Your your father has no sons, um, so your sisters might starve. Like, he's... He's enumerating facts in a way as not to be cruel, but it is cruel. And Tom Stopper does it in such a way in the film as it is truly heartfelt. And like, Mr. Collins does feel at least uneasy in himself about the fact that his inheriting long inheriting Longborn means that his five cousins could be out of their will be out of their home entirely and and could be left destitute and penniless well look i mean i'm sure he had to hype himself up to ask a pretty lady to marry him it's true and a lot of his hype up probably didn't come from like you're the coolest everybody (laughs) likes you right it was probably much more of this (laughs) uh she's you know Catherine de (laughs) berg you know Catherine de berg she's broke like it's an ace in the hole, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I don't see a whole lot of kindness here. <laughs> no. Like, I think it goes, I don't, like, I will say Tom Stoppard in the movie, like, his his piece is uh, edited greatly. It is, quite a like, bit. Like, we, we don't get to this whole concluding part. And a lot of, a lot of sentences are struck. And, and I would, and I would just say that probably helps with the, <laughs> the coming across genial. It does. It absolutely like the less Mister Collins physically says, the better for Mister Collins, which is like the more more knitted eyebrows, less actual words, <laughs> makes him a much more sympathetic character. Yeah, which is interesting that the movie chose to play it that way because like he is loquacious like here is a person who does not know when to stop talking which is like part of his faults and why lizzie can't accept him but i also think like one of the things that's interesting to me on this reread is how much jane Eyre there is in her refusal when she says in particular um do not consider me now an elegant female intending to plague you but as a rational creature speaking the truth from her heart Mm. that's very uh Jane Eyre, do I not also have a beating heart and a dream and a wish and have all the thinking capacity too? I think that's an interesting comparison because the the passage in Jane Eyre, she's trying to remind Rochester that she's a human being with her own will. And that's very much the conversation here. But I think that piece about like, I'm not one of those elegant women is to, I think, at once try and elegantly try to step around a compliment and and not let him know that she's and also feeling like I think she wants to point out the ridiculousness of that assumption (laughs) yeah and like how cruel it, it truly is she's like the thing that you're saying that us females do would would be to mislead an honorable man and he is like he's 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 uncouth in a 
and like not fun to be around kind of a killjoy, but he's not a bad guy. He's just like not for Lizzie. I mean, maybe. I don't know. He kind of sounds like a bad guy here. This is all bad guy stuff to say. I mean, it's very much like I'm a nice man. He feels entitled to Lizzie. That's yes. very true. Yeah, he feels entitled to Lizzie, and he also feels entitled to... These are degrading things to say to someone. Yeah. This won't be the least degrading proposal that she uh, (laughs) is forced to endure. But, like, just because you're going to get another bad proposal doesn't mean this proposal isn't bad. And, like, this is pretty bad. This is telling her that in spite of your many-fold attractions... Uh, It is by no means certain that another offer of marriage may ever be made you. Your portion is unhappily so small that it will in all likelihood undo the effects of your loveliness and amiable qualifications. Like, it's it's so... Transactional? It's not transactional because, like, yes, but, like, that he's transactional all the time. Mm -hmm. But what's striking to me about this is... You you pointed out it's backhanded, but it's so unartfully backhanded. Whereas when Lizzie says, uh, my feelings in every respect forbid it. Can I speak plainer? Like, that's a little bit more elegantly backhanded. Speaking of her act- not being an elegant <laughs> female. I think she's backhanded and he... I I think this serves to show, because this is a comedy of manners, that even while us as readers are deciphering, everyone in the book knows where they stand. Even someone as... Like, I think the thing that makes me dislike Mr. Collins here is that even someone as obtuse as he is understands what's going on. And that's why he's making the counter arguments that he's making. Like, he does not genuinely believe, based on how he's escalating, I don't think he genuinely believe. he knows that it's a hard no. Mm-hmm. He doesn't genuinely believe that this is flirtatious or anything, or coy. And I think in the film, they play it as if he does. And there's probably, like, some kind of, like, economy of space and duration, right? Like, this is ultimately not a key scene for that production, but also like making him winsome or making him less of a total dick Mm -hmm. makes what happens later on a bit more palatable, I think. I think what's interesting about this scene is you're right. He knows going in that it's a no. Like he knows that already, which means that like... I mean, he doesn't know it's a no until she says no the first time. I think the fact that he came prepared with his arguments suggests to me that there was a level of uncertainty that even Mrs. Bennett's yeah. insane encouraging couldn't dissuade him right. from, right? Which means that Mr. Collins isn't, as you said, as obtuse as like he's made out to be at times. Like, here's a person who, like it or not, probably has a good view of themselves, like in the sense that they see themselves at least kind of clearly some of the time. And knew that, like, Lizzie's too pretty and probably too smart. And, like, uh, in other circumstances, if her material circumstances were better, like, this isn't, this would this would be too big of a reach for me. Mm-hmm. But because her material circumstances are what they are, and I'm going to play on that in the sense that, like, she needs to be worried about her sister's 
having something to eat in future. Yeah. And I have the ability to bring that up. (laughs) Right. I think that's interesting. Like, I think, like, the materiality argument that he is making, like, it just, it makes, it makes marriage what it is, which is a legal, contractual, financial yoking of two people. And especially at this time period when women had no choices, it's like, it's an economic proposition more than it's anything else. Yeah, but it's also threatening what he's doing. Deeply threatening. Um, And I think it was nice of her, because they leave this out of most versions, that she says, listen, you don't have to be sad about the family. Like, we're going to figure it out. Like, you've discharged your duty. Because, like... Yeah. And she says, puzzle... Is making... uh, I'm I'm trying to find his response to that. That you have no pretension... Okay. And he says... When I do myself the honor of speaking to you next on this subject, I shall hope to receive a more favorable answer than you have now given me, though I am far from accusing you of cruelty at present, which means he is accusing her of cruelty at present, because <laughs> um, of the rejection. Perhaps you have even now said as much to encourage my suit as would be consistent with the true delicacy of the female character. I think what he's saying there is like, you're being cruel, and I'm going to give you a second chance to be a nice girl and accept my proposal, which I think is is very barefaced. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, listen, you're poor. I have a nice income. I am next to Lady DeBerg. She and her connections will be available to you. Like, this is not a bad deal for you, Lizzie Bennett. Like... And he is, he's making that plain. This is very much like, I'm a nice guy. You could do worse. You will do worse. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, I think to me, like the most nefarious way of talking to a woman is to like insist on your kindness in doing so. So after this conversation, are you still lo- as loath as Mr. Collins to abandon Lizzie? Are you as loath to abandon that Mr. Collins is a is a good-hearted person ultimately? He is the text certainly sees him as one of the lesser villains. <laughs> How do you see him? It's really hard to get Tom Stoppard out of my head. Um, but no, he's 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 not a nice guy in this. And he doesn't know it, which I think is even worse. I actually find in life it's the people who insist on how um on how, or at least how like put upon they are. Yeah, like my problem is if if anyone tells you my problem is I'm too nice, run the other way. Yeah, it either represents a critical lack of self-reflection or a bold-faced lie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like self-delusion, which is clearly what Collins is doing here on the page. And Lizzie is being for her part I mean, really, really patient, honestly. Literally the morning after that ball, she has to deal with this. Right? And her mom's just like, you're doing it, and leaves her alone. Yeah. Because she knows what's coming. Yeah. (laughs) Lizzie's had a hard time. She's had a hard go. Lizzie's, she's having a hard couple chapters here. At first it was all like rainbows, lollipops, and... Walking uh, in the mud. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I've already forgotten his name. Wickham? Wickham. It was all rainbows, lollipops, and Wickham. Anything else strike you about this chapter? What an exciting round of dialogue. I'm trying to not make this a Jane Austen's writing fan cast, but... 
Ooh, that was exhilarating. That was exhilarating. <laughs> was it as good for you as it was for me? Better. Obviously, it was better for me. Are you kidding? I just got to sit and enjoy it as it washed over me in all of its hellacious glory as I was like, oh, oh, literally, as the kids say, cringe. Oh, man. I bet you say that to all the girls. <laughs> if only all the girls read to me, Morgan. <laughs> I got to just lay there and let it wash over me in hellacious glory. Yep. <laughs> Oh, bad. Well, any any other anything else? Anything else? No. Well, we have to with that loosen your prejudices. <laughs> <laughs> but never your prides. There you go. Mm-hmm. Ah!